Open up to Daniel 2 if you would. And keep this handy. Because we'll get to it. We introduced it last week. So Daniel chapter 2. So we're going to start in verse 24, which is, of course, where we left off. Mm. So verse 24 to just a few verses here, 24, 25, 26, and then we'll break that down and then keep going. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, and we remember who he was whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He, he has a bunch of jobs. His main job is to do whatever the king tells him to do. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. He's talking, of course, to Ariok. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Now, um, Interestingly enough, if you recall last week, and I guess I should have started there just as a recap. Remember, he went to his friends. He asked Arioch if he could get time and if he could take him to the king and if, if the king would be willing to give them time to find out from God what the interpretation and what the dream was. And Nebuchadnezzar gave him that time that he requested. And so he went with his friends, he gathered his friends together and said, guys, we need to pray about this. And they brought it before the Lord. And what's so cool about this is that um, when he gave him the understanding of what Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed as well as the interpretation of it, he immediately turns in verse 23 and says, I thank and praise you, O God, my fathers, of my fathers, you have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. And remember, of course, that was something that his own wise men, uh, soothsayers, Chaldeans, and uh, the rest could not do. So here in 24, he immediately goes to Ariok and he says, look, don't destroy all of the wise men. Take me before the king. I will give him the interpretation. Verse 25. And Ariadne quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. King answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Now, before we go on, let's break that down. I love this part. We may think that what Ariok was doing was a little bit arrogant because remember, he takes Daniel to the king and says, Lord, I have found the man. I, I did it. I found the man. And, and that almost seems a little bit arrogant to us, like he's trying to pat himself on the back and puff him up. But he really was taking a big chance because Daniel at this point hadn't told him yeah, Ariok, here's what he dreamed and here's the interpretation. He just said, I've got it. So really, Ariok must have believed Daniel and knew that he would not fall down on the job because if he did, it would probably cost him. I thought I had corrected this, but I didn't. It's supposed to be I.O. But anyway, Ariok thought if, if he fails, it's going to cost me too. So... Let's continue. One second. I wonder why this. I bet I could write the screen though. Yeah, we might just have to raise the screen. No. Yeah, that'll work. Oh, there we go, we got it. That'll work. Okay. Alright, so verse 27 through 30. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers could not declare to the king, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar 
what will be in the latter days. This is an important phrase. It is used every time it is used in Scripture or a variation of it, last days, end times. Whenever that's used in Scripture, it's talking about far-flung future just before the return of the Messiah, every time. So Daniel is talking about this, and he's saying, look, King, what you dreamed is what's going to happen way at the end of human history. Way at the end. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. And then he just starts telling them dream. As for you, O King, thoughts came into your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. After what? After present time. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes, who makes known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. I mean, talk about being really humble. Here is Daniel basically telling the king, God is the revealer of secrets. And in essence, he gave this dream to Nebuchadnezzar for a very real purpose. Imagine if he had not given this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. We wouldn't know. We would not know the order of events, the order of empires that would follow. But he gave, this is what's so fascinating about prophecy in general. Because God, outside of time, reaches into time and says, this is what's going to happen. Just like this. And then it does. And so we can sit there assuredly and go, God is God. God exists. God knows. God reveals to whom he will. So Daniel immediately points the key to God Almighty. He immediately directs his attention, pointing out that all of his wise men could not provide what only God could. And he's including himself there. Remember when he said, you know, he didn't get, I didn't get this because I'm the wisest man on earth. The reason I got this is because I submitted myself to God and I asked him and God gave me what I asked for. But he gave him what he asked for because it was important that God's information about what was going to happen from that day forward to the end was known to humanity. So the latter days, as I mentioned, is a reference to what would occur way down in the future. We're not talking about just a few months or a few years from, from Daniel's time here. We're talking about this is going to go on until the end. Daniel first tells Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was and then points out that it was, wasn't his own wisdom that he received the answer by. It was for the king's benefit. But it also glorified God. That's the number one point here. God reveals information to human beings because it glorifies God. That's why. He didn't have to do that, does he? He could just let everything play out, which would be thoroughly confusing to us. And as it is, some of the stuff in his word is still confusing. You know, you can talk about just going through the book of Revelation, and there are so many different opinions and interpretations of those things. But imagine if God didn't take the time to tell us what was on his mind and what he intended to do. So it should give us comfort knowing that God has determined what will happen and has prepared events accordingly. Even when it looks like Satan is the one that's doing it, God is still in charge of all of that. So verses 31 to 35 say, here's, here's Daniel, and now he's still explaining the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. So imagine, here's a dream, and you, you, you see in your dream this thing which is, who knows how tall, in your dream. And it was probably extremely vivid, and realistic. 
even though the statue itself wasn't real, it was probably very vivid, very realistic, and obviously really impacted him. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. <coughs> you watched while the stone was cut out without hands, which simply means what? It wasn't made by any human being. Which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together, and they became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away, so that there was no trace of them found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So this is an absolute, I can see why Nebuchadnezzar had no clue. What does this mean? I don't get it. It's kind of scary. It's overwhelming me. I've lost my sleep. What does this mean? So this, so Daniel is relating the dream. And now, oops. there we go. Okay, so now he's seeing this in his mind and basically what Daniel is telling him, Nebuchadnezzar realizes, okay, yes, that's exactly what I dreamed. So if this young man, this kid, maybe 17, maybe 20, if he's able to tell me what I dreamed, I think I'm going to believe that he's going to tell me what the interpretation is. All right. Then he says... This is the dream, meaning that was the dream, that's what I, I just laid out for you, what the dream was. Nebuchadnezzar didn't disagree, he didn't interject and say, no, that's not what I dreamed. He was probably a little bit in awe, I would imagine. So now we will tell you the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength and glory and wherever the children of men dwell or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven he has given God has given them into your hand and made you ruler of them all so not just men not just women not just children but the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. God gave him, Nebuchadnezzar, authority to rule over all of them. If Nebuchadnezzar had wanted to, he could have made his kingdom much, much larger. But he didn't. He could have. And God obviously would have allowed him to do that. But he didn't. But after you shall rise another kingdom inferior to yours. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And by the way, when they say here, over all the earth, what we're obviously realizing here then is that we're talking about the known earth. The known earth at this point. And the fourth kingdom, verse 40, shall be as strong as iron, Inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron it crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, verse 41, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, that the strength of the iron shall be in it just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. So here, this fourth kingdom is, the, to me, the most fascinating one. Verse 42, And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. They're never going to mesh. We're talking about the toes here. So remember that when we get to that point. So the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw, 
iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men. And as you can imagine, there are a lot of interpretations of that phrase right there. But they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. You can't take iron and mix, with, mix it with clay and have it stick. The clay you can just pull right back off. It does not mix. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, meaning all the kingdoms that came before it, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. So, imagine... You're sitting there as the king, you get this dream, you have no clue what it means, you may not even remember it, and then this young man comes to you and tells you what the dream was, and then tells you what it means. It's exactly what happened. So, this whole period of time right here, from Babylon down to the fourth kingdom, that whole period of time is what is referred to by Paul the Apostle as the times of the Gentiles. And we'll get in a little bit of that in a minute. But it basically includes the head of gold, the breast and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of brass, the legs of iron, the feet, toes, part iron, part clay. Let me go back there just a second. So, Empire One, Empire Two, Empire Three, Empire Four, both of these. Empire Four. So the identities of the empire. This is this is fascinating because the critics actually agree that all of these empires have been named historically. There, there's no one that's credible disagrees with this. But it's also the big reason why some critics believe that the accuracy of Daniel, especially this chapter, happened because Daniel the prophet didn't write it down. Somebody else took the name Daniel after it happened and then wrote it down. That's why it's so accurate. The problem though is, which we'll see in a minute, is not, has to do with the, the final empire, empire four which segues into multiple different options before it actually goes somewhat out of existence but never fully goes out of existence and then actually comes back in the form of the ten toes and the feet of iron and clay. And that's what's destroyed by Christ when he returns. So that hasn't happened yet. That has not happened yet. But let's keep going. The statue itself... It's comprised of a number of different metals. If you want to take your paper, and you can see it's the head of gold, and that represents Babylon, absolute monarchy. And it's an absolute monarchy because the monarch himself is totally above the law. Mm. Nebuchadnezzar can make the laws, and he himself does not have to obey them. He is above and separated from every law that he makes. Also, if you'll look at the, uh, well, I don't have it in front of you, but if you look on your paper, you'll see a line with wings. In another part of Daniel, we'll get to that, and that is the description of another vision that Daniel has, which describes the first empire in a different aspect. And then we get to the breast, or the chest and arms of silver. Oh, and I, this is important, by the way. Nebuchadnezzar saw this statue in his dream, right? Well, it didn't represent anything real. I mean, it wasn't a real statue, I should say it that way. It was not a real statue. What it did was represented something that would become real. 
And what was it representing? It was representing at least four different empires. And those empires came in and out of existence through history. Now, Revelation does the same thing. If you look at the book of Revelation, and those of you who are with us when we went through Revelation, there are many things that happen. There are many symbols that take place that, that, that John sees in the heavenly realm. Those were symbolic of something that really either happened during his day or will happen later on. So what Nebuchadnezzar saw was a statue in his dream, but there was no statue in real life. What was real life was the statue and the various um, aspects or areas of that statue which represented a different empire. But the question we need to ask ourselves is, well, what's the literal meaning of the statue? Because there can only be one meaning. If I say to you, and I've said this before, uh, I believe, you know, I'm so hungry I can eat a horse. There's one meaning for that. Uh, one meaning only. You're not going to expect me to go out and eat a horse. You're thinking, oh, he must be really hungry. So we call those things what? What do we call those? Alliteration. Alliteration. Metaphor. Uh, yeah, all kinds of stuff. So what we're doing here is Nebuchadnezzar saw something that you could say was an alliteration. And Daniel had to explain what that literally meant to him. So, when we take a look at these particular aspects of the statue, we've got the head of gold, Babylon. The second one, the arms of silver in the chest area, that represents Medo-Persia. And notice, this is represented later on in Daniel as a lopsided bear. It's a lopsided bear, and the lopsidedness of it is very important. We'll get to that when we get there. But in that particular empire, the monarch was not above the law, could not change his own decrees. And we see that very, very clearly when Daniel goes to the lion's den, when we get there. The third empire, the belly and the thighs of brass. This represents Greece. Notice there is a jaguar or uh, some type of lion type of animal with four wings. Four wings. And in that particular empire, Hellenistic kings had no dynasty or royal right to rule. They ruled by force and personal gifts. So it was a constant game of thrones. They were always watching their back because someone their first in command might be getting ready to shove a knife in it. So it was not assumed, and this happened to Alexander, it was not assumed that his son or progeny would become the king. And he didn't. I think he had two sons, at least one that we know of, and he was killed before Alexander died. So when we get to it, we'll find out. And this, by the way, is all clearly, clearly delineated in the book of Daniel, even though names are not used. When we get there, we'll find out that he dies, we know that from history. He was a very young man, I think in his very early 30s when he died. And his empire was huge, and he had no son to take it, so his generals divided it into four pieces. And then out of that, out of one of the pieces, came a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes IV that Jesus talks about when he refers to the abomination of desolation. That's all in the book of Daniel, even though names are not listed. That's how precise this book is. All right, so then, this one. Legs of iron. Rome. Rome is a republic which degenerated into mob rule, merging with an imperial form of government. Rome was probably the longest surviving, we'll get into this a little bit, it was the longest surviving empire out of these four. This one, of course, Christ's kingdom, will surpass that by eternity. But Rome, it went through many iterations, starting in, I believe, something around, like, it actually started coming up 30 B.C., roughly. And then it went into different things. You'll notice here, you've got two legs. Well, Rome started off as one thing, and then eventually it divided into the east and the west. And they had to do that, because it became so difficult to rule over because it was so large. And not only was it large, 
But the problem was, there were so many different culture and people groups in Rome as they kept conquering and absorbing all this, this geography, really, that, that they could not keep track of it all. And there was this inner turmoil that was constantly growing, which is why they broke into two, the East and the West. And the one part became stronger than the other, and then eventually more problems occurred, and then... Germanic tribes, the Visigoths, and I uh, forget the other one, sorry. Um, just these roving Germanic tribes, they would just start whittling away at Rome from the outside and conquering. And then they started dying from within mm. because of the corruption. And it just, they caved in on itself. But Rome, by the, they were basically the longest surviving of these empires. So I will say, was the East like the Ottoman Empire, kind of that, that Muslim, that side, or? Um, that wasn't really officially Roman Empire then, that kind of came afterwards, that was more closer to the 700s, 800s, 900s, and then that whole thing, um, well, I believe. Some historians would argue that the Roman Empire still exists. Well, it does to an extent, yes. Well, what happens, like in the Dark Ages, is the church comes, you know. Yes, you're right. Absolutely right. The power broker, uh, you know, representative of the, the old Roman Empire. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you because. It happens in Rome. So. Well, and it was due to Constantine, who was kind of a barbarian, and then all of a sudden he sees this vision in the sky where it sees a cross and it says, by this conqueror, and so he believed he needed to conquer. Um, based on the cross of Christ. And so then, literally, he would go after barbarians and give them the chance to become saved or die, and many of them refused, so he killed them. But ultimately, what, what uh, Sam is saying is correct because it became married, the state became married to the religion, which at the time was morphed into Roman Catholicism. And then Rome became the seat of that. So it was almost indistinguishable. You had the pontiff and then Constantinople or Constantine ruling from Constantinople. It was just, it, it became mired in its own web of politics and religiosity. All of that brought it down. But I agree with you that Rome, unlike these other empires, there's nothing left of the Babylonian Empire, there's nothing left of the Medo-Persian Empire, there's nothing really left of the Grecian Empire. Rome still goes on largely because of the Vatican and because of the Pontiff. And also what's really fascinating is the European Union is, had, came up through the same geographical area that Rome did. And they've even talked about doing a Mediterranean room, uh, uh, empire or union, which would expand it further, but it would expand it more along the lines of ancient Rome. So it's just kind of a fascinating thing to me. This part down here, by the way, when we get into the feet and the ten toes, my, my belief is, my understanding from this is that that has not happened yet. It has not happened yet. And we'd have to go to Revelation I believe it's 13, we'll touch on that in a minute, because it also talks about the ten kings. And other parts of Daniel talk about the ten toes or the ten horns, and so we'll get into that. They're all the same thing. It's just God is giving us a different perspective of that, whatever it is he's trying to get across to us. And this is important because from what we can call the ruins of an actual Roman Empire where there was Caesar, but now it's kind of being held in place by the pontiff and the Vatican and Roman Catholicism. Out of that, I, I firmly believe, whether it's this pope or another one, they're, they're going to have a part in this revived Roman Empire that will come onto the scene. And that revived Roman Empire will be made up of the feet with the ten toes. That's the way it starts. And that's all outlined in Revelation, as well as other parts. <coughs> so, let's see. Two things to note about the metals, as I mentioned last week. 
they increase in strength as they go from the top to the bottom. We, we talked briefly last week that gold is kind of a soft metal. Well, by the time you get down to the legs of iron, iron is, is strong. It's very, very strong. I remember when I was growing up that steel, though not iron, is certainly strong as well. When I was growing up, cars were made of steel. They were made of steel. Now they're made of plastic and rubber, and they've done that for a number of reasons, but I, I guess they're safer, I'm not sure. But um, anyway, we get to the uh, bottom here, where Rome is, that's an extremely strong, strong metal. And they decrease in value. Steel is not worth half as much as gold is. It's just not. I remember when I was in social studies class in seventh grade, the teacher was bemoaning the fact that he had not bought a lot of gold. And at that point, it was worth $35 an ounce. And he said, if only I had known. I could get into a time machine and go back and buy a ton of gold and be very wealthy right now. Well, we'd all love to be able to do that. I don't know what it is. Anybody know what it's worth now? There you go. Anyway, and, and anyway, so the fulfillment then is that these empires will increase in strength of the empire over the other. So, for instance, Rome. By the time you get to Rome, they were exceedingly strong. People were afraid of Rome. They were afraid of the Roman soldiers. This is part of what Jesus alludes to when he talks about. I think. I know there's differences of opinion here, but when he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, if somebody slaps you on one cheek, turn to him the other. If someone tells you to carry your, the suitcase a mile, carry it too. Well, what he's talking about there, in my opinion, is that in the Roman Empire, they had laws. If I happen to be a Jew, and here's a, here comes a Roman sail, uh, soldier, he didn't feel like carrying his backpack. He could just go, you carry my backpack. And that Jew would have to pick up that backpack and carry it for him a mile. And at the end, a devout Jew would know exactly what a mile was. So at the end of a mile, he would just drop the backpack and go about his business. But Jesus is saying, look, he made you a slave for that first mile. Tell you what, carry it of your own free choice, the second mile. And you're not that person's slave. And it's the same kind of thing with the, with the backhanded slap. If you were to fight a Roman soldier on the battlefield, they would use the back of their hand. They would use the back of their hand. And this sounds terrible, but if they were to slap a person, any person, a non-combat person, they would just slap them like this. Well, what, what they're doing is demeaning that person aside from inflicting pain. So Christ said, give them the other one. Give them the other cheek because they're like this. And now if you give them the other cheek, they have to come back and hit you with the back of the hand, which makes you equal to them. So that's one way of looking at it. Other people disagree with that interpretation, but the, the Roman authorities and the Roman government did have laws like that. So it will increase in strength of one empire over the other. It will decrease in character and authority and rule as well. So all of this, though, regardless of how we look at it, is destroyed by the stone. And of course, what it hits is defeat. So that will be, when Christ returns, there will be what many commentators have called a revived Roman Empire a revived Roman Empire. And that will be standing to some extent in some iteration when Jesus returns. So he will be going after the feet with the ten toes. And cut without human hands, of course, emphasizes deity. So the times of the Gentiles, the first empire, head of gold, most valuable of metals on the statue. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was. One nation ruled by Nebuchadnezzar. From God's perspective, again, this first empire 
began the times of the Gentiles. So when you're in the New Testament, you're reading Paul or some other writer and they happen to mention to you the times of the Gentiles, now in your mind you're going to go all the way back, oh yeah, that started with Nebuchadnezzar. And it's still in existence today, right now. This is part of the big reason there is such a problem in the Middle East. And, oh, and by the way, regarding the Middle East, do you know, I'm sure you know this, if you don't, uh, I'll tell you anyway, but in 1948, when Israel became a nation, at that time, the UN not only said to Israel, okay, here's your land, you can become a nation state again. At the same time, they turned to the Palestinians and they said, we, we will give you a state as well. Palestinians said, nope, we're not interested. We're not interested as long as Israel has a presence in the Middle East. So since day one, at least going back to 1948, the Palestinians were not interested in co- in living right next door to Israel. They, they were not interested. They're still not interested. They would like you to think that they're interested with a two-state solution, but they're not. All right. And the times of the Gentiles basically refers to the time when foreign nations will control Israel or trample the holy places. And that's exactly what's happening. In 1948, they became a nation. Immediately, Arab nations began to war against Israel because they hated the fact that Jews were now in the Middle East, especially having come from the Ottoman Empire, which was largely Muslim. It was considered a caliphate. And by the way, that's what Muslims are seeking now, a world caliphate. And they're also looking for their, what they call their final Mahdi, M-A-H, D.I., which is their Messiah. He will lead them into their promised world, which won't have Jews in it. And uh, so anyway, that's what they're looking for. But if you look at the Temple Mount, who's trampling it? Gentiles, mainly Arabs. So they, they got their nation in 1948. Immediately the warring began. Finally in 1967, it got so bad there was a six-day war. What happened? Arabs attacked Israel, just like they did recently on a Sabbath, knowing that Israel can't fight back or won't fight back. And that's what happened. So immediately the six-day, the so-called six-day war began and Israel looked like they were really getting destroyed. Well, within a week, they not only turned the tables, but they regained land that they had just lost, and they got more land, and they actually finally united Jerusalem. They took control of all of Jerusalem, not just their part, but the part with the Temple Mount in it. To this day, on paper, they control the Temple Mount. Their big mistake after Moshe Dayan led troops into Jerusalem, their big mistake was to allow the Muslims there to continue having security over the Temple Mount. So they basically gave them, they said, okay, you can, you can have the Temple Mount, you can have security, but you need to let Jews go up there, etc. Well, that didn't work out so well. So that was another mistake that Israel made. Israel is full of these kinds of mistakes. Instead of doing what God tells them to do, they do what they think they, they should do or want to do. So because of that, the Temple Mount has been trampled ever since, almost 1948, and it will continue to be trampled for quite a while. Times of the Gentiles is God's response to Israel's rebellion. And we need to remember that too. What's going on in the Middle East right now is due to Israel's rebellion. That's the bottom line. They're not doing what God wants them to do. They don't see the reality of who Jesus is. They rejected their Messiah. And what did Jesus say? I'm not coming back until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they are out of God's will, in a sense, 
God is chastising them. He started with Nebuchadnezzar, and he will continue to do that. So the second empire is two arms of silver united into the breast or chest of silver, and it's two nations, Medes and Persians, two nations, the Medo-Persian Empire. And this, is, this empire is declared inferior to Nebuchadnezzar's. It lacked the inner unity. It's two different people, really, the Medes and the Persians. They came together to form an alliance to create an empire. But because they came from slightly different cultures, there was no real, true unity. Not like there was with Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because he was one guy. And he answered to himself. He made the laws that he didn't have to follow. This was not true with the Medo-Persian Empire. If one of their leaders, rulers, made a law, he was also obligated to follow, as I mentioned. The third empire. The belly and two thighs of brass is the Greek or Hellenistic Empire. And by the way, this is very interesting because even though Alexander was... He died. Even though his, his empire was broken up into four parts, and even though Rome eventually took over and pushed the Grecian Empire out of the way, overruled it, the Hellenism, the Greek uh, influence, was very, very present during the days of Jesus. Oh, yeah. Huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah? After the New Testament. Exactly. Koine Greek. The original language of the New Testament is, is written in Greek. So it had to do with the fact that even though Greece as an empire was gone, their influence still carried itself on. Might also represent, I'm not sure I agree with this, but I just it, threw it in because there's, there could be a bit of a connection. Some people believe it doesn't represent Medo-Persia, but Syria and Egypt as they arose from the Greek empire. But ultimately, I still think it was the uh, Greek Empire. And they controlled Jewish territory in Jerusalem. That, see, Israel has always been between these powers, these superpowers. They've always been between. They've always been trying to, to you know, have one against the other and trying to get into the good graces of one while turning against the other. And all they had to do was obey God. And God would have done for them what he said he would do. But instead, they wound up losing control, often, of Judah, Jerusalem, and other parts of Israel. So the fourth empire is the Roman Empire, and this one is fascinating because it goes through several stages. The United States, as we mentioned, was in verse 40, and um, verse 40 is interesting. I'm not going to reread it again, but you can glance at your text in front of you in the Bible. That's a United stage. It's, it's way up here on the statue. It started off united. It grew from nothing. It started off united and cohesive. And then it went into a two-division stage hundreds of years later. Rome actually started, as I mentioned, in about 30 BC, and by the time 476 AD came around, it had broken up into the two divisions, east and west. And then it morphed to the point where it really wasn't a political empire so much as an empire that had married, the state had married the church, and together the church really overruled the state. And then the ten division stage. Um, let, me, let me just read for you real quickly here. Revelation 13 and a few verses of that chapter, starting with verse 1. And this is John talking, And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power, and his throne, and great authority. That's verses 1 and 2. So here's John, and he goes, look, this thing has ten horns. Well, a horn is always representative in Scripture of power, king, or a kingdom. 
So here is this one big beast that John sees, and he's got ten horns, seven heads, ten crowns on his horns. So there are ten kings, and there's other portions that talk about these ten kings in Revelation 2. This is the ten division stage, which we have not seen yet. It's still coming. So part of the empire is strong, part of it's weak, and it fails to come together and coalesce in unity. <laughs> so there is this progression, as I mentioned. Really, the Roman Empire went all the way from 31 BC to about 1453 AD. And as we know, because the Vatican still exists, because the pontiff still exists, because the, the Roman Catholicism still exists, that has authority. And it's a little kingdom. Vatican is one square mile, but it's its own country. It's its own nation. So it still exists. And I honestly believe, whether it's this pope or some other pope, the, the Roman Catholic, Catholic Church is going to have some part in this end-time revival. I could be wrong. Totally unique from previous empires. And they were, because no previous empire had this same type of political system. They were a republic, unlike the United States was a constitution, were a constitutional republic. They were not that kind of republic. They were more like an imperialistic republic, but they had a senate, and it's just a fascinating thing. Nobody else before them had that. It totally subdues and crushes all that precedes it. One of the things that defined the Roman Empire was its brutality. It's brutality. The empire is particularly emphasized in the text regarding the times of the Gentiles. It never really completely goes away. And though Rome, the empire finally falls, as I mentioned, governments in Europe continue to try to resurrect this. I remember French President Sarkozy, he came out to the press one day a number of years ago and he had this plan for the Mediterranean Union which he thought would replace the European Union. He even had a coin made mm. as the currency. I mean, they're always trying, and they're trying now. So the fifth empire, that's the one we're looking forward to. Amen. It's the millennial kingdom. It will not be Gentile, but it will be ruled by Jewish persons, of course, with Christ as the head. Every empire in the times of the Gentiles leading up to this empire is ruled by a Gentile. And that's going to be the same thing, although some people believe, this is interesting, because when the revived Roman Empire comes up, some people believe that the person who leads it will ultimately be the Antichrist, who will have, who will at least be part Jewish. Because Jews aren't necessarily going to listen to a Gentile. So, there's that to consider. Two symbols used here, consistent with usage elsewhere. The, the stone is used symbolically, always as the second person of the Trinity. The stone, the builders, the capstone, the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That's Christ. Mountain. Used symbolically is always a symbol of a king, kingdom, or throne. And this fifth empire will be God's own physical kingdom. It's hard to picture it because there's so much angst, corruption, evil in the world. But sometimes I just sit there and I think, well, the millennial kingdom, imagine that. No one will be corrupt. No one, well, no one it won't be put up with. Christ will deal with it just like that, unlike today. So it won't, that, that kind of stuff won't exist. And it's hard for me, maybe you have an easier time, but it's hard for me to wrap my brain around just how relaxing and uplifting and righteous it will be compared to all the corruption that exists today and has come before. So summary of Daniel 2. The Babylonian Empire number one, the Medo-Persian Empire number two, the Hellenistic, also known as the Greek Empire number three, the fourth empire, the United Stage, Two Division Stage, the Ten Division Stage, and then the Messianic Kingdom. So this, up to here, up to here is the Roman Empire that has already come and gone, but is waiting in the wings, 
and it will be revived or raised up, if you will, as, and it'll start off as a 10 division stage. And from there, it'll morph down to just one ruler, which is the Antichrist. And that's all in Revelation. But ultimately, we'll all be destroyed and superseded by the Messianic Kingdom when Jesus returns. And so, we've got that. And then I have this other one, which I didn't take time to present. But we'll, we can, I can give you a copy of this next week because... This talks about, by the time we get to here, this is Alexander's kingdom, right? Right here. And his kingdom was broken up among the four commanders after his death. One was Ptolemy, one was Seleucus, one was Cassander, and the other one was Lysimachus. And each of these took a portion of the empire. Ptolemy took Egypt, Palestine, and Arabia, uh, Seleucus took Syria, Babylonia, and India. Cassander took Macedonia and Greece. By the way, this is an important one, which we'll talk about a little bit later. We'll talk about Seleucus in Syria, Babylonia, and India. And then this last guy took Thrace and Bithynia. So it was a huge kingdom, and it took four of the generals to be able to control it, as opposed to just one Alexander. So I can give you a copy of that. And then it talks down here briefly about uh, the ruler, how long they ruled each one. So this was Nebuchadnezzar, that was Darius and Cyrus, and then the last one was Alexander the Great. And the animal that God chose to represent that particular ruler. Those same animals are represented in the book of Revelation. Yes, they show up. Isn't it amazing, the unity? It really is. God wrote this book over a period of about 1,600 to 2,000 years using 40 different human authors. And we sit there and we go, you know, people pick and write about this, that, or the other thing. But the absolute overriding unity of this book, you, you can't deny. Yeah. You can't deny. And, and you've got like the Quran, which was written over a period of about 50 years by one individual during the life of the leader of Islam, Muhammad. There's no comparison. There is no other book like this. Any questions or comments?